today on Ag News Daily. One of our concerns is there's a large group of farmers just like him that may be facing that same transition in the near future. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast with regular co-host Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today? Um, pretty good. Pretty good, I suppose. I had some uh, pasta for lunch, so I'm a little burpy, so I apologize in advance. Fantastic. I had Mexican, so I am oh, yeah. not burpy. the opposite end that's yeah, creating that's a Thanks. My Thank you. Do you know what I mean? Yep, we got it. It's not a burp. Yeah, we got it. Madison, I'm so sorry oh. you have to listen to these conversations. <laughs> And we are joined by our fantastic intern whose stomach we are making stronger every day, Madison Honkamp. Madison, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I had some breakfast pizza for lunch, so. That sounds I like probably the winner. I holding up with that. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Enjoy well. your you can, Madison. Enjoy it. <laughs> Eventually, all of these foods start to act up and they act against you. Mm-hmm. That is true. It's sad, but it's true. I know. I know. But yeah. I tell you what, uh, Delaney, we've got a really good conversation coming today. Why don't you tell our listeners why they should stay tuned to the Ag News Daily Podcast? I would love to. We had a great conversation earlier today with Mike Downey, who's one of the founders and owners of Next Generation Ag Advocates. Kind of a long name there, but essentially they're working on succession planning and it sounds like they do things a little bit out of the box and out of the ordinary for maybe normal succession plans. So I do encourage listeners to stay tuned for that. But of course, if you're listening, you're probably here also for some news. I'm going to kick it off with some interesting news that's food related. I shared this on our Facebook page either this morning or yesterday. And that is, I'm not sure that this is the first legal body to pass this, but definitely one that's made headlines and that is legislature passed in Alabama. They have officially passed a bill to ban lab-grown meat substitutes from being labeled as meats because they do not want their Alabama consumers to get confused about lab-grown versus actual production meat. And so they've passed some legislation now. They said it's too proactively, it's proactive legislation to ensure clarity in food labeling Around the company, or excuse me, around the country, there are more and more companies trying to market lab-grown meat, which is misleading, since they aren't actually derived from livestock production. So they're trying to get ahead of the curve here and address this issue head-on. I thought that was pretty interesting. It is, and I'll tell you what, Delaney, I am a huge proponent of conventional livestock production, as our listeners are well yes, aware. well aware. I support cattle industry, the dairy industry, the pork industry, the poultry industry. If you're going to raise a critter and kill it for its delicious inner body parts, I think that you should be celebrated for it. But I also think that the Alabama legislature might be overreaching. In this case, mm. I hate to say that, and I really want listeners to give us their feedback on this piece of legislation because I do think, Delaney, you're exactly right. We're going to see a lot more of this from other states, particularly cattle and pork heavy states, where they try to limit the labeling of meat to strictly livestock production. The reason why I think this might be an overreach is because lab-grown meat is still technically – 
the muscle tissue of animals. It's not a vegan product by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly a lot more meat than the Impossible Burger and these so-called meatless meats. It is, it is literally meat. Sorry, Alabama. Mm-hmm. That is grown without the body of an animal. I, I, I have a really hard time squaring this circle, if I'm honest. I'm surprised by that, actually. Madison, I know that uh, you're pretty new to hosting a podcast <laughs> with us, but do you have any thoughts on lab-grown meat products? Or I know your mom works for the USDA, and you're pretty, your family's pretty involved mm-hmm. in agriculture. Have they said anything about it? Yeah. Um, honestly, if you ask my dad about it, he will just shut you down and say that he thinks it's the worst idea ever. Um, but first, I was kind of... I'm, surprised by Mike's answer but that is kind of true it is still muscle tissue um and they can't I don't know if you could say I don't know I don't know it's it's a very gray area and I think it's a very fine line um but it's nowhere near like calling almond milk milk exactly Um, so it's it's just a very fine line I personally don't agree with calling it like meat possible maybe I don't know I think Consumers just need to be made aware what it is. So that needs to be like on the packaging rather than just saying it's meat. Right. Call it lab grown meat. I think that's yeah. the solution. It's, it is technically a mm. meat product, but it is grown in a lab. I think if, if I am going to, I'm trying to think of an, an analogous example and I'm, I'm kind of coming up blank because this is, of course, uncharted territory for the meat sciences in particular and for the ag industry as a whole. But, yes, there has to be a distinction because it is clearly not raised with, you know, by producers out on the field. It isn't conventional meat in any sense of the word, but it is still muscle tissue fed a a diet, a ration, so to speak, of nutrients that keep it alive and make it grow just like a little baby calf is uh, is fed a ration of hay and eventually put on grain and turned into a delicious grain-fed ribeye. I just, once the government starts getting involved in defining these terms, especially with such specificity, I just wonder what kind of headaches we might be creating. I think it's a great intention, this Alabama law, but I worry of unintended consequences, namely because, as our listeners know, I'm kind of an anti-government crackpot. Mm. So I, you know, I, I hate to see him. You know, well, I'm a nut. So that take that been, into consideration. Um, that has been quite the long tangent from you, Mike. Well, I've got more. Do we have time? Um, no. no. We're going to be it now. Madison, we what news. do you have for My- news? <laughs> um, well, I have one thing kind of relating to news. This headline really jumped out at me. I know we've talked about Snap a lot on the podcast before, and this is more just kind of like a statistical announcement more that they had today. But so the USDA reported the USDA's Economic Research Service actually reported that the uh, food stamp spending is actually boosting rural and em- employment. Um, and I thought this was really interesting because you wouldn't typically see that. So I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe it's, you know, they're pushing people who are kind of on those programs to get jobs or something. But it's actually due to the families and um, households that are on these kind of the SNAP benefits and different assistance programs that they are less likely to save and more likely to spend. So it's driving demand up for food and other goods. So then 
in return, creating more jobs for others. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. And um, they actually have reported that for every $10,000 spent on additional food stamp benefits, there's in rural areas, not any metropolitan areas, really, mostly just rural. It's a very small um, increase. It's just 0.4 percent. But it, it's still that's how much employment is raising every time that much is spent for food stamp benefits. Interesting. Well, that's good news. I mean, even though food stamp benefits are declining, as you mentioned, I mean, we're seeing <laughs> the economy strengthen. Hey, anytime that we're able to put those things to good use, that is great news for the rest of the economy. Exactly. Well, Delaney, what about you? What other headlines mm-hmm. are jumping out at you today? Well, I have one headline here talking about USDA and the latest round of assistance package, we saw Senate Democrats putting pressure on the USDA and also Secretary Purdue because they do not want this trade relief, the latest package, to go to foreign-owned companies operating in the U.S., such as JBS or Smithfield or otherwise. And they have sent a very aggressive letter, it sounds like, to Secretary Purdue and Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, as well as Senate Agriculture Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow, saying that it's unacceptable that American taxpayers have been subsidizing our competitors through trade assistance, which, you know, disagree or not disagree, I think it's important that we do allocate this money to actual U.S. farmers and businesses and not those folks overseas. I didn't think it made any sense that, like, isn't Smithfield owned by a company from China? Yes, it is a Chinese state-owned company, an affiliate yeah. of that, which owns Smithfield. But at the same time, Delaney, mm-hmm. you know, we've got to recognize the fact that production of meat and increasingly dairy is a global uh, uh, supply chain. And so right. we do have two of the major four U.S., quote-unquote, U.S. packers that are owned by foreign companies. And those, quote-unquote, foreign packers buy a lot of livestock from American farmers. So, I mean, there should be a trickle-down effect. And, of course, there's been a lot of discussion in the economic literature about whether or not trickle-down effects work. This dates back to the Reagan administration. But that's, I think, the assumption that the administration is operating under. How do we... How do we buy finished stuff, meat, mm-hmm. without paying a foreign country since you know, roughly 50% of U.S. packing capacity is owned by foreigners? I, I don't know that we can. I'm not sure that we can either, I guess, but I get the argument of they want to make sure that American producers are receiving the money. Right. uh, That's a fair concern. And I hope Congress continues to look into it. If we're going to be handing out federal dollars paid for by the American taxpayer, either directly as income and uh, other taxes or indirectly as tariff taxes on Chinese Mm -hmm. goods and services, then, yeah, yeah, I suppose we ought to make sure it's trying to go to the American producer. Absolutely. Well, Mike, what news do you have to share for today? Well, I have a fascinating article out of Reuters, and I do enjoy talking. I think Reuters has some of the better ag reporters in the country. And this report is coming out of Buenos Aires down in Argentina, Argentina, for uh, you American listeners. I'm I'm so fluent in Spanish. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. Um, Basically, the uh, the conversation is about how Argentinian farmers are seeing a huge drop in soy prices, and 
Despite the U.S.-China trade war, of course, Brazil has been the major recipient of Chinese purchases. Argentina has been secondary. And this kind of cracks me up. So this is so our listeners who are active in the soybean market will probably smile at this sentence. Delaney, see if you can pick out what's wrong with it. Quote from Maximilian Heath, Reuters. The local Rosario Grains Exchange estimates that despite a bumper harvest, the fall in soybean prices will knock $1.4 billion off the country's expected soybean-related income this season. What in that (laughs) sentence strikes you as uh, interesting or contradictory? The fall in Argentinian soybean prices? Right. In spite of... A record harvest. It's not in spite of a yeah, record harvest. It's because, it's because of. Because yeah. Exactly, Delaney. See, in, in two short years, two short years, you have gone to become an expert grain well, analyst. That is what we appreciate about you. You're quick to learn. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure uh, about that. But what's that? I'm not sure. I'm an expert grain person. I just maybe understand hey, things better. Hey, now. Delaney. Yes, Delaney. What? Shush. <laughs> First rule of being a media personality: yeah. anytime Live? somebody compliments oh. you, you thank them. And you say, well, I really appreciate that, but you're too kind. That's the first rule. <laughs> Never right. contradict him. Always okay. take the compliment. All right. Uh, basically, the uh, the content of the article was that, okay, Argentina expects to see its soy farmers reap benefits from the U.S.-China uh, uh, trade war. Hasn't happened quite yet. Uh, Chinese soybean prices are still at a little bit of a premium over Brazil. Brazil continues to be the favored exporter to China, and it looks as though that's going to continue. So Argentinian soy farmers are are doubling down. They're planning on increasing their plantings this next year, which, of course, we're still, you know, a solid four to six months away from plantings in Argentina, being as there in the southern hemisphere. But, um, you know, this is one of those things that uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on. These trade wars create global supply chain disruptions. Hmm. Okay. Are you done? Is that your... It felt like another rant almost there. Oh, no, it's not a rant. Okay. I, I think our listeners know my thoughts on this trade war. I don't need yeah. to go into it. No, I agree. I'm we a gannet. Yes, we all know that. <laughs> okay. Well, anyways. What other news? Um, I have just one other piece of news I wanted to talk about because this is an issue that I am personally very passionate about because I've had to withstand having crappy rural broadband at my parents' house. And I know I've complained about it before, but it is seriously so bad. It's really, I don't understand why they're even paying for it because you cannot do anything on the rural broadband. But we saw the Federal Communications Commission or the FCC issue a new report discussing 2017 numbers. Apparently they're a little behind on their reports, it sounds like. But they said that in 2017, Some 4.3 million rural residents gained access to fixed and better broadband. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? But they said later in the report that 21.3 million Americans still lack the services that they would consider good or normal connections, which, you know, there's some specific numbers that doesn't really mean a lot to me, but... Essentially, there's still 21.3 million Americans that have crappy broadband and internet connections. I thought it was also interesting, though, because they had their commissioner of the FCC make a statement saying that essentially 
data from your phones and your mobile services fixes this problem largely for rural America. And I think that that is bullcrap. I, you know, Delaney, that's the only way I'm able to do this podcast is on my hotspot through Verizon. I know, but I still feel like I cannot even use my hotspot at my parents' house. Like it has to be just so, or I have to like sit in a certain room. Even that I have hard time using. Hmm. Well, Verizon, at the end of the day, I'm a huge fan of yours. You have kept me on the air in very remote places. I would love for you to sponsor the podcast. Yeah. If any of our listeners have a brother-in-law or cousin or whatever at Verizon Marketing, shoot them our way. We'd love to chat with them about marketing. Or Arby's, as you mentioned the other day in the podcast. We had one of exactly. our... Exactly. I'm in sales mode, Delaney. we got to generate some income off this puppy. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. Well, hey, speaking of generating income, one sector of the American agriculture industry that has had a terrible time generating income is the dairy sector. And we finally saw what could be perhaps a ray of sunshine for American dairy producers. It is a very dim ray of sunshine, but it exists. And that is the fact that Fonterra, the giant milk cooperative out of New Zealand and Australia, is reporting that both its New Zealand operations and its Australian operations are seeing fluid milk production down 10% in the month of March to April due to dry weather in New Zealand and increased costs in Australia. The challenge American dairy producers have faced is one of an absolute flood of fluid milk production worldwide. So while we hate to root for others' failures, a crimp in production in the Southern Hemisphere, hopefully could help American producers at least get closer to break even this year and keep more small dairies in the U.S. and Canada afloat. All right. Well, that's a little bit of better news there. Well, as long as you're not uh, New Zealand or Argentinian. Yeah, well, we don't Kiwi have... Or an Aussie. I don't think we have a lot of those listeners. We don't. But if you have cousins or brother-in-laws down in Argentina <laughs> or uh, or whatever, Australia or New Zealand, we'd love to pick them up as listeners. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Do we have any other news that we need to talk about today before we get to the markets? I'm out. Madison? I have nothing. Of course, before we hit the markets, it is Thursday, which means we've got an update from a good friend, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I'm Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. A common occurrence is to check the cooling level on a hard-working gasoline or diesel engine and to find that it is low while there appears to be no leak. You top it off and carry on, but with an uneasy feeling. Is a serious engine problem looming? The answer in most instances is probably not. The cooling system is working the way it should. When you work an engine hard, it uses more fuel, but what we do not think about is the heat that is created by the fuel consumption. The thermal load on an engine is directly linked to the rate of fuel consumed. The heat needs to be absorbed by the coolant to prevent thermal distress. The job of the liquid is to remove heat from the engine, and the task of the radiator is to remove heat from the liquid. It is the liquid that cools the engine and not the radiator. Under high thermal load, the coolant in the water jacket of the cylinder head undergoes a regiment identified as nucleate boiling. When nucleate boiling occurs, the most effective heat transfer to the liquid happens. 
When the engine is lightly loaded, the surface temperature of the combustion chamber is usually low enough that boiling in the water jacket does not take place. After the coolant boils, it is pushed from the site via the system pressure and the water pump. It takes heat with it and will recondense as it cools. This boiling and recondensing consumes the additive package along with the water that turned to steam. The mystery of the missing coolant is now solved. Have a blessed day and join me next week on Ag News Daily. I want to jump into the markets and listeners. Our markets are brought to us by our friends at the Zaner Group. We continue to see incredible volatility across the grain sector. Whatever your planting progress is, you're going to need a marketing plan. Reach out to our friends at Zaner to put one in place and to get help sticking to it and to manage your risk. Give them a call at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. As we take a look, it is big green in the grains today. July corn up 17 and a half cents at 436 and a quarter. December new crop up 16 and a half to finish the day above 450, close the day at 452 and a quarter. Soybeans also much stronger on the day. July up 17 cents at 889 even. November new crop. Up 17 as well. Finished the day at 9.15 and a half. And Chicago wheat was the huge gainer on the day. July, Chicago wheat up 24 cents at 5.14 and a half. September up 23 and a half. Closed the day at 5.22 and a quarter. Jumping over to take a look at the livestock industry. As you'd expect, with strong gains in the grain complex, we're seeing weakness across the proteins. June live cattle was down $2.27 and a half cents at 110.07. 50, the August contract down $2.80, closed the day at 105.05. In feeder cattle, the August contract was limit down, down the daily $4.50 trading limit to finish at 138.22 and a half. September also limit down, closed at 138.52.50. And mixed trade in lean hawks. The June contract was down $1.52.50 to finish at 83.67 and a half. The July was up seven and a half cents, finishing at 87. 87.50. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. In class three milk, the June contract was up nine cents, closed at 16.16, with July up a dime, finishing at 16.56. Without further ado, let's kick it over to Mike Downey in these complex marketing environments. How are producers securing land for the next generation? Well, today we are talking with a company that is working on an issue that I'm sure hits close to home for many of our listeners, and that's succession planning. And what to ha- what do you do when maybe mom or dad decides that they're done farming or circumstances change? We're talking today to Mike Downey, who is a co-owner. He's also a land lease and farm succession consultant for Next Generation Ag Advocates. Mike, first of all, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for the opportunity. Mike, I want to ask you, obviously, succession planning is a huge issue within the agricultural industry, but how did you guys get the idea to do what you're doing at Next Generation Ag Advocates, which is a little bit different than maybe other succession planning companies? Yeah, really, the idea came from a couple farmers here in Iowa, from eastern Iowa, one of those who retired in 2015 after 40 years of farming. And he did not have a successor to take over or carry on his farm operation. And uh, and one of our concerns is there's 
a large group of farmers just like him that may be facing that same transition in the near future. And uh, so really the idea came from, his name is Glenn Muller, retired farmer, landowner from eastern Iowa, and then Steve Bohr, who's also a farmer and also works in farm transition. He's a, a co-owner of another company called Farm Financial Strategies that works specifically with farm transition for farm families within their own family. Next Gen is more about helping with transition across families where there maybe isn't a successor to, to uh, carry things on. Well, and that is a huge challenge, Mike. As we look at the industry, of course, we are aging in agriculture. We're coming off a huge boom cycle where we saw a lot of sons and daughters return to the farm. And so succession planning for the last you know, 10 years has been about how do you get it to that next generation. But now that we're entering a period of, of perhaps a little more trouble on the farm, Families are going to need to find those non-genetic successors to come in. How do you guys find folks that will be a good fit for a farmer who is retiring? You bet. So we've uh, modeled a lot of our process off the, the process that Glenn used when he found a successor for his operation. He didn't want to just uh, have a kind of a just rent it out to anybody per se. He wanted to use a process to find the right. Uh, producer that kind of fit his beliefs and uh, match, you know, his goals and objectives for his farm. And uh, so we've uh, developed what we call our Century Match program, a matching program to help match up retiring farmers or even non-operating landowners that there may be some transition within their family, matching them up with uh, prospective producers to kind of carry on the operation. And so, uh, Landowners or producers can sign up for that on our website, and uh, that's how we are uh, reaching out to folks when we have an opportunity to come up in a specific area. And uh, that's what we're really trying to do is sitting down and really understanding both sides, their goals and objectives, and kind of matching them up, kind of almost making like a marriage per se. Yeah, I love the idea, Mike, but I've got to ask, it seems like when you talk to especially the farms that are maybe century farms or that it's been in the family a long time, they want it to stay in the family. So do you see that that's been the case of of folks being like, well, I like the idea, but I really want it to stay within the family? Are you seeing that trend as well? Yes, I would agree. Um, and I would say our conversations with a lot in the next generation that's going to uh, of that family farm that may not be actively farming. Um, there's still interest to continue to own the family farm for that reason, family sentimental reasons. Um, so they can continue there as a quote unquote, a landowner, but we can still bring in a successor on the operating side to carry on mom and dad's farm operation, transition the equipment, if there's livestock, if there's an operating business and, you know, operating how to transition that over to a, a person to carry on the operating part of the business. Absolutely. Finding that best of both worlds scenario where the family gets to retain ownership and yet another producer gets to come in and grow their operation and both sides get to win. Now, when you're combining the two sides, you've got the landowner perhaps who's saying, I'm ready to retire. This is a producer I'm looking for. Looking for. 
Talk us through a little bit of Glenn's strategy. What kind of factors does he take into consideration or do you take into consideration when you're matchmaking these uh, these marriages, so to speak? That's great. Yeah. And, and uh, I've spent a lot of time. One of the uh, when a landowner or producer first go onto our website, there's about four or five quick questions that they submit. And one of those is we want to understand what's important to both parties. And it's this is a, this isn't a one-sided marriage. It has to we have to kind of make a fit for both sides. And and we've spent quite a bit of time almost ranking what are the top two or three. And uh, what we're finding on the landowner side, you know, income always gets a lot of attention, land rents, um, etc. We're finding almost tied for first with receiving fair income is stewardship and care of the land. And uh, and then I would say even if there's a tie, another uh, one, a, a kind of a third tie, that would be all the quote unquote the little things. A lot of times we focus on the big things, but you know a lot of times we find even with Glenn there were some little things that were important to him, like uh, making sure that there's no horse wheeze between the last row of the corn in the field and the fence row. That's kind of a pet peeve of his, and uh, that's what we find that there's a lot of little things too that. Maybe are just as important as the big things. And uh, from the producer side, what we're finding is by far they're seeking out long-term relationships. And uh, the, the challenge or the concern we have is when we look at the industry, the way we're handling a lot of our lease relationships don't necessarily promote a long-term relationship when it's kind of a year-to-year arrangement. There's a lot of uncertainty these year-to-year arrangements also don't really promote or coincide well with long-term care and stewardship of the land. You know, uh, whether it's cover crops or no-tilling, a lot of those types of programs are not one-year in nature. They're kind of long-term strategies. So we really feel it's important to structure a lease arrangement that that promotes that. Absolutely. That makes total sense. And, And I guess I'm not surprised that people aren't really planning long term, but Mike, I am surprised by the statistic that you guys have right on your homepage here, which is 70% of family farms will change hands over the next 15 years. I don't really have a question about that, but wow, I was shocked when I read that. I don't think people realize the magnitude of of the transition that we have here coming in farm country. Yes, you know, and I think we've been talking about this for four or five years. Now we're really starting to see it happen. And I think the really big picture concern that Glenn and Steve had when they decided to put this together is what is agriculture going to look like in, in the future? You know, there was an example just here uh, a, few, a few weeks ago, right here in Iowa, a thousand acres transitioned and some of that transitioned to an operation 85 miles away. And uh, the question that we often ask is do you do you truly know every producer within a five mile or a ten mile radius of your farm? And when people really sit down and think about that, we've yet yet to have anybody really say confidently that they do. And uh, guess the point I'm trying to make is we feel some of the best fits may be right in our local community. We just don't know it. And uh, our concern is as we see this consolidation, the impact to our rural communities, our local uh, town or neighborhoods, 
you know, as we see more and more of this transition happen outside of our neighborhood, you know, there's a, a big, big picture concern that we have. Absolutely. Everything in agriculture affects our small communities. We are all tied to the land. Once you get outside of a metro area or even in a lot of cases in Iowa and Illinois and South Dakota, Minnesota and so forth, even in large metro areas, the strength of those economies is tied to farm country. And you know, we've talked about this, Mike, but farm country is struggling this year. We're seeing a lot of acres remaining unplanted. We're seeing finally a, a, a rally in commodity prices, but it doesn't do us much good if we have nothing to sell. Talk to us a little bit about some of the lease arrangements that you guys have been able to put together for producers who are concerned about launching a long-term agreement with somebody when there is all of this financial risk ahead on the table. What types of things have worked in the past in some of the arrangements you've put together? The leasing program that we put together, the, the original intent of that was actually to support the matches that we're making through our matching program. We didn't want to just to make this introduction and say, Hey, uh, good luck. We really wanted to have some sort of a process to support that for four or five years to work through the early year challenges. And that's what we came up with as a kind of an unbiased third party leasing program to support that relationship. And, uh, not that we want to play on the farm economy, but we really feel that this leasing program, we're, we're getting a lot of interest from existing relationships, wanting help from a third party. Sometimes tenants don't feel comfortable themselves having these conversations with their landlords. Bringing a third party in to bring an education piece in to help uh, lay something out that it is fair, sustainable, long-term. And, uh, you know, one, one lease type we're real, real fans of is a flexible cash rent lease where we can put in a, a base level that is fair, um, that still protects the landowner, but leaving the upside open to allow the landowner to participate if the producer is having a good year. And uh, I know Glenn uses that on his farm. Uh, my parents use it on our family farm now. And we really feel over five or 10 years, the landowner very well may come out ahead for the fact that we've leave the upside open. And, uh, but at the very worst, even if you just come out even, we feel all of those goals that I mentioned earlier, having a lease structure like this, it's more viewed as mutually fair from both sides. It's just going to promote better care, long-term care, the land, stewardship, long-term relationships. And uh, we really think for the long-term of agriculture and the next generation, it's a, a legitimate option. Yeah, it's all about getting into the future here. Uh, Mike, I have a, a question, I guess, about once I sign up for, if I'm a landowner or a producer and I sign up for the Century Match or the leasing program, what's usually the timeline of getting a match paired up and kind of walking through that process with them? So we just came out with the program basically in the summer of 2018. And we've made a couple matches already, which we're happy with, but we're, as we're getting awareness, uh, people are becoming aware of it. We're having a, a number of conversations for 2020. And uh, again, we hate to play on the farm economy, but we see our biggest challenge is bringing awareness to this, to the 65, 70, 75 year old farmers that are still farming 
don't have a successor, but hey, um, 2019 wasn't a real fun year. Maybe we're just going to decide to hang it up. And we want to make sure that they know they have other options other than just having a lining up the equipment and having a retirement sale. And uh, so that uh, initial profile that is on our website is just four or five questions. It's just intended for us to make initial contact. And then we will follow up with a personal follow-up to learn more about whether it's that landowner, that retiring farmer, or uh, the producer, the young producer, or a existing operation that has signed up with us. So uh, um, interesting enough, um, all of the conversations we're having with the retiring farmers right now, we realized the other day when we sat down and spoke about it, uh, all of those have come from uh, introductions from producers. So that was a little bit surprising to us. But uh, I think it kind of goes to my comment earlier. Sometimes uh, farmers don't always feel comfortable going and knocking on doors. And so I think there's some producers using us as a, a third party just to help open the door to some opportunities where maybe there wasn't before. Absolutely. And it's nice to have that vote of confidence. The producers are the ones or landowners are the ones going out there making the recommendations saying, hey, there's value in this for me. Now, Mike, we've talked a lot about uh, next generation uh, ag advocates. How far of a territory are you guys willing to work with producers and landowners? And do you stick to eastern Iowa or are you willing to go anywhere? Right now, we are having conversations across the state of Iowa into Nebraska, southern Minnesota, Illinois, northern Missouri. But I would say, if I had to say, our footprint starting out would be the state of Iowa and into western Illinois. And uh, we're planning to do uh, a series of informational workshops across uh, Iowa and into western Illinois here later this summer, early fall, just to try to continue to bring awareness to the you know, the big picture concerns that we have is the number one thing we want to make people aware of. But number two, that, hey, we have other options, and, you know, uh, consider this because, uh, you know, what as we see more consolidation happen in the next two or three years, it's just try to do it responsibly. Absolutely. Well, Mike, before we let you go, how can folks uh, find out more information about some of those summer programs or just if they have questions and maybe are looking at succession planning for their operations? Sure, yeah, I would definitely encourage them to uh, check us out on our website. That's nextgenag.us. Uh, we also have a business page on Facebook for those that are on social media, Next Gen Ag Advocates. You, you can find us and follow us there. Uh, we, we post uh, updates on any meetings or opportunities we have, whether that's our matching program uh, or uh, other opportunities we might have uh, want to make people aware of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for sharing the program you guys are working on to help with succession planning. Well, yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to help bring folks uh, aware to it out there in farm country. And we're really excited about it. And uh, we're all positioned and able and ready to help. And uh, so we appreciate the, uh, the time here today. All right, folks, check out their website. If you're a farmer looking to retire without successors or if you're a young producer trying to get started, get your head in the door and you're progressive and want to want to address things for the next generation, hop on their website and apply. Let them have your information and maybe they'll be able to find a match for you here as uh, as matchmakers in the ag industry. Yeah, it's kind of like Tinder, but for your land. 
Yeah, it's like Tinder for your land with a lot less innuendos. Or even <laughs> farmers only. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. It is. It's like farmers only, but again, but for land. with your windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in your endos. What? All right. Well, on that okay. note, folks, you can interact with us. Give us your thoughts. If you have any um, interesting jokes you'd like to share with Mike, you can hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter at AgNewsDaily. You can also interact with us on our website, globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. Madison with that, should we let the people go? <laughs> Let's let them go. Yeah.